Welcome to the Cognation podcast for this week. I'm your host, Rolf Nelson, along with Joe Hardy here. Hello. And today we have a special guest, David Wolf, an emeritus professor from Wheaton College, which is where I work and teach. David Wolf is a researcher into the psychology of religion. He's written one of the foundational textbooks on the psychology of religion called well, Psychology of Religion, Classic and Contemporary. David got his bachelor's degree at Wittenberg University and then got his PhD at uh, University of Michigan, where he taught an extremely popular psychology of religion course that, uh, when it started out, I think enrolled about 60 students. And by the time he got done teaching it a few times, went up to over 350 students. So he brought a lot of interest to the area. Uh, he was the president of Division 36 in the American Psychological Association. And in more recent years, he's been developing a methodology called the faith Q sort, which is a way of determining religious inclinations that I'm sure he'll talk a little bit about and something that's been used in 14 different countries and contrasting religious tendencies across different people. I could talk on and on about uh, his qualifications and all the great things that he has done, but I think maybe we should just start getting into the conversation here. So David, welcome and thanks a lot for being with us. That's a real pleasure, Rolf. Yeah, thanks, David. So maybe we can start out by just asking the question, uh, what were the motivations for you getting into the psychology of religion? Well, when I started graduate study at Michigan, I was still struggling with my religious point of view that I had grown up with. I was finding myself increasingly distanced from it. I was experiencing conflict between a religious point of view and a psychological point of view. And, you know, in the midst of this struggle, the opportunity came along, this was my second year, to volunteer to teach the psychology, it was called Psychology and Religion at Michigan, teach that course along with several other graduate students. It was a strange course in that uh, it was not funded, so none of us was paid for our volunteer work. It was only two credits uh, when the standard course was three, and psychology majors could not count it toward their major. That first year, as you suggested, there were about 60 students. There was a social psychologist who was sort of in charge of the course, but under his leadership, it really was a, a sort of a second-rate sociology of religion course. The students in my section, we divided the 60 into four sections, were quite frustrated. So I introduced the sort of the classics of the psychology of religion and William James and Jung and Allport and Fromm and, and others to their great happiness. And then the subsequent year, I was invited by the chair of the department who was champion of the course to take it over. And so then for several years, I developed that course. And uh, this, as you've already indicated, this student interest soared. And that, of course, was deeply gratifying. The course was switched to three credits. You could get credit for major. And uh, finally, we were paid. That's great. What, what do you think was the key in terms of making it more appealing or interesting to the students? Well, it genuinely addressed psychological uh, understandings of religion. There was at Michigan no, no department of religion. You know, so taking courses on religion uh, was, was not easy. And I think a number of students came to this course to study religion, or, and many of them, I think, for personal reasons, you know, trying to decide uh, you know, where, where they stood. And it just caught on, students recommending it to each other. This might be a subject that not everybody is familiar with and uh, might even sound contradictory to some people, the psychology of religion. So how do you go about framing something like the psychology of religion when there, there, there may be contradictory um, viewpoints represented that uh, religion might be larger than psychology or consume psychology and psychology might think the other way around? How do you reconcile these two different points of view as being, being well, equal and, and, and each given enough respect? They have struggled with each other over the decades. Um, 
psychology of religion means that religion is the object of analysis and psychology is the subject. Psychology is used to, to illuminate religion and religion is not always happy to, and when I say religion, I'm, I'm thinking of say scholars of religion or simply proponents of religion. Uh, religious people are not always uh, happy about the intrusion of psychology into their lives. I think at least some popular press on the subject and, and certainly some philosophers and psychologists thinking about why it is that we believe something as being the primary goal. So we should say, you know, why is it, evolutionarily speaking, that we believe in God or some sort of abstract deity? Of course, you'd be insulted if you if you did believe in God to, to suggest that it was just something in your head. Or that their understanding is strictly something in their head. Strictly speaking, uh, psychology of religion should be neutral about the existence of its transcendent objects. Uh, but that's not always, not always what happens. I mean, what it amounts to today is what we would call methodological agnosticism. That one, as, as a psychologist working methodologically, one simply remains agnostic, neither affirming or denying the existence of the transcendent. But a lot of the researchers in America are are themselves Christians and even evangelical Christians, even conservative evangelical Christians. So they, they are not interested in uh, evaluating how, how religion may have come about, but are rather interested in demonstrating that to be religious is, is a good thing, that it uh, yields uh, various forms of well-being, it's a constructive thing. There was a time when, and this is in the middle of the 20th century, when the, the main concern was the apparent correlation between religiosity and negative social attitudes, you know, such as authoritarianism, dogmatism, ethnocentrism, and, and so on. And trying to, to deal with that sort of embarrassing correlation, they uh, tried to distinguish different kinds of religiosity, suggesting one kind may be subject to these negative uh, social attitudes, but the other kind uh, is not. And to a degree that has worked out, but the main instrument, uh, which is a religious orientation uh, scale, the main instrument is seriously flawed, but still, still widely used. What would be those differences then in terms of the types of religiosity? Yeah, the, the classic one is, which was put forward by, well, actually put forward by Theodore Adorno, uh, one of the authors of the authoritarian personality, but it was picked up by Gordon Allport. And it's the distinction between treating religion as an end in itself, which they call intrinsic religion, and treating religion as a means toward other ends. And the other ends have sort of been divided through factor analysis, divided in, into personal uh, ends and social ends. So a personal end would be that it makes you feel better. And a social end would be that it helps your business contacts and social relations. Well, one of the problems is that the measure of intrinsic religiosity or religious orientation, you know, sort of derives from mid 20th century Midwestern Protestant piety and it really measures the degree to which persons attend church, read the Bible, and pray. And it, it is, as you might anticipate, uh, or correlates highly with, with fundamentalism. So to call it an intrinsic scale is, is really misleading. Um, it has been highly uh, criticized, but boy, it's still popular. So is that popularity due in part to the dominance in the field in the U.S. from Christian uh, researchers, or yeah, where, I would where does that so. come from? Yeah, I would say so. So then there aren't that many people from other faiths that are doing research in the area? Well, there's an increasing number of, of Muslims, mainly through association with American researchers. Uh, I can't say that I've seen much success on that side, well, there is a multitude of questionnaires intended to, to measure religiosity, but they, 
they all tend to, to reflect Protestant, uh, evangelical Protestant Christianity. Maybe this is a good time to discuss the methodology that you developed, the uh, faith Q-sort methodology. All right. I, I had for some years been criticizing uh, in my book and subsequent publications, criticizing measures that were being used and how uh, one-sided they were and how that distorted the, the research process. So the, the faith Q-sort is my answer to that problem. Q-methodology is intended to assess some area of subjectivity, so it can be used in the, the multitude of topics, and it's widely used these days in various fields, although methodologists within psychology, I think, are not, not well-versed in it. But Q-methodology itself, in terms of the method, uh, involves having a number of usually statements, it could be single words, it could be even images, uh, on cards. And they, the number can vary from 30 or 40 up to, well, my Q sword is 101 items. Oh. And, and the, the task for the person who is completing the sword is to distribute these statements over a continuum with nine categories. Uh, from one one extreme is you know this is definitely this definitely describes me, and the other category definitely does not describe me at the other end, and then the uh, distribution is to be a roughly normal distribution with instructions of putting you know five statements in the, the most extreme categories and then eight statements then twelve then sixteen and in the middle nineteen, and then when you have a number of people who've completed the Q sort, you can then do a special factor analysis that correlates sorts and not items. And what comes out of that factor analysis will be a, a set of what are called prototypes, sort of prototypical ways of sorting these statements, prototypical ways of, of sort of making sense of the world and of one's own experience. The three major prototypes that have come out of research with uh, Americans uh, and also some Europeans include, first of all, uh, secular humanism, which is a familiar notion, uh, you know, a totally sort of anti-religious uh, thing, though some secular humanists are, are more open than others to uh, what religion might have to teach them. Then a second one is traditionally theistic, and that's, you know, that's your traditional way of thinking about things. I might mention that in a study with Catholic students, college students, that this traditionally theistic correlated very highly with Allport's intrinsic religiosity. And then the third major prototype, and this is the one that interests me the most, is what I call the spiritually attuned prototype. Now, this, this isn't a particularly theistic prototype. Now, theism is kind of relatively low in the sorting process. More common um, the orientation toward, toward nature or a kind of spirituality of, of the earth. More openness to multiple meanings and a report of feeling enchanted by mystery and, and uncertainty. I'm rather mystery and, and paradox. And this may be sort of what people call being spiritual today, but I, it doesn't really fully accord with uh, other people claim or psychologists claim uh, spirituality is about. Do you have any examples of the kind of statements that these three types might rate high? So an atheist, theistic, or spiritually attuned? What oh, sorts of oh, statements okay. might... Of the atheist, you know, rejects any any claims, any religious claims that uh, are in conflict with rational or scientific thinking. So that's that kind of thinking is given prominence. Um, the theistic, traditionally theistic, uh, perhaps the most uh, one of the highest ratings is to the statement: believes in a divine being with whom one can have personal relations. Mm -hmm. And uh, the spiritually attuned, well, let's see, what would be one of the, the highest, feels 
most spiritual in, in the context of nature. And then the item about is enchanted by mystery and paradox. They are also, whereas the uh, traditionally theistic are likely to affirm the Bible as uh, a literal word of God, the spiritually uh, attuned, more likely to see it as a, a human document, perhaps inspired, but, but not divine. Then there are you know, the minor prototypes, and, uh, of which there were five in the initial group. Um, many fewer representing these types, but I think still important. One of them that I, I think find particularly interesting is uh, reluctantly skeptical. Um, a person who is, is really sad to have, have lost a religious point of view, who is probably reluctant to share that change, um, may feel all they have left is a certain set of moral principles uh, uh, and so on. Uh, another one, institutionally anchored. This is a person who's, who feels a bit at sea in terms of their personal faith and the way they find some kind of position in the world is to commit themselves to some institution, probably, you know, some congregation where they uh, spend a lot of time. You know, for them, church attendance is, is not about uh, making contacts or having social relations, but is uh, a context in which they can try to feel closer to God. And then there's the religiously extroverted uh, persons who whose religiosity or spirituality, whatever you ever want to call it, mainly manifests, it, manifests itself through external behaviors, so attending church and so on. They are not uh, people who spend time alone uh, praying or meditating. Um, and well, there are a number of others. The, the minor dispositions, oh, I'm sorry, the minor prototypes um, vary fairly a lot, you know, um, from one group of participants to another. You know, and I've, I've had Unitarian and Universalists complete the sort, uh, and as you might guess, knowing how liberal that organization is, that, that there are almost, there are virtually no traditionally theistic persons there, but there can be a, um, a residual kind of minor prototype of, of kind of wistful wishing for a, um, a theistic faith. The um, secular humanistic split in two with one, one of them well-established, confident in their point of view, of committed to making the world a better place and so on. The other secular humanistic, uh, much less confident in their point of view, not sure about what they embrace. And they also report being more anxious than the other. And they seem less committed to carrying out some kind of social uh, justice. Now, in, in a Polish group, the traditionally theistic, these are people in Poland, traditionally theistic uh, prototypes split in two, uh, quite cleanly, one of them being a, a traditionally theistic on the basis of authority, starting with what their parents taught them up to the present where they turn to authorities for their orientation, whereas the other uh, theistic, traditionally theistic prototype grounds their views in, in their own personal experience. So when, when you talk about some of the some subtypes like reluctantly skeptical, sounds like a sad kind of life to live, I guess, if you're if you've lost your faith and, and feel bad about that. Or well, you know, when I worked up the description, you know, how how a uh, Q sort culminates is in the in the creation of a of a summary sort of paragraph that describes what this prototype is about. And once I had worked out that description for the reluctantly skeptical, I sent it to the student who was sort of what, what's called a defining variable. That is, they are uh, exemplars of a particular prototype. So I sent this 
to an exemplar of that prototype. This was a couple years after he took the uh, QSort and had graduated. And he was struck by how well it summed him up. And there was a certain uh, sadness to that. You're exactly right. And I guess I ask because it seems like the reluctantly skeptical and then the other group of of uh, secular atheists that's maybe less sure about a commitment to a social cause seem like the kinds of groups that may be interested in finding a substitute for religion in some sort of sense that, that feel like religion has a useful role and provides something to people's lives but can't can't convince themselves to believe. Well, another minor prototype was what I call a religious humanist, and it does correlate with a secular humanist, about 0.5, but the religious humanist is much more open to, um, much more interested, say, in the lives of people like Gandhi, you might say, uh, much more open to sort of learning from the religious traditions without feeling they have to somehow believe in them. So they, they make use of, of uh, or they're certainly open to. So they can be more eclectic about the set of beliefs uh, that, they, exactly, that yes. they adopt. That's, that's very interesting. One of the things that I was thinking about as you were describing these different prototypes was what is the purpose from a psychological perspective of religion? Uh, so, you know, in cognitive psychology, we often talk about the utility of a certain function or ability. And, you know, from this perspective, it seems that religion certainly does play a role in our psychological lives. David, from your perspective, do you have a view on that, what the psychological utility or purpose of religion is? Oh, there are multiple purposes, as you might might imagine. And, you know, the, this intrinsic-extrinsic uh, distinction is one not-so-successful effort to, to sum up how that can be. I mean, there's no question that people find great consolation and comfort in, in religious ideas. And, you know, I'm recently critiquing a paper on, on the Bible as a coping tool uh, and how and this among people with cancer and, and how they, you know, turn to various passages in the Bible for consolation. Um, and, of course, Prayer plays a, a major role in their lives as they try to uh, make peace with what's happening to them. Well, you know, particularly the, the notion of an afterlife uh, is enormously appealing to, to many people. That's a consolation. But, you know, from the thinking of it from another point of view, the, the teachings about an afterlife, uh, and particularly a threat of hell, uh, is a way of manipulating people and and trying to get them to embrace certain ideas. So there's, I mean, for, it, it varies a lot, you know, depending on how, how mature, uh, sophisticated a person might be, and how they, in effect, use their religion. Um, for some, it, it, it leads to a kind of, of depth uh, personality, I would say. For others, it uh, can lead to unfortunate um, social and, and political effects such as we are seeing today. It strikes me that one of the purposes that you could imagine for religion, particularly for from an evolutionary standpoint, is the idea of values. So a societal structural framework that prevents us from just going off and killing each other uh, randomly. <laughs> so, so some sort of like, uh, you know, ethical and moral well, there, there uh, framework. A, there is a tradition in the psychology of religion that goes way back to the beginning of the 20th century of thinking of religion as, as the preservation of values. Mm -hmm. Values here being, of course, what someone considers most important. Uh, you know, there's the, the question, you know, conservative religious people tend to think that that one has to be religious in order to be a, a moral and compassionate person. In fact, one of the Q sort items is to that effect. Uh, it, it states it negatively. It, it is not necessary to be religious to be a compassionate and caring person. But that is 
you know, that's a that point of contention that people who say you don't have to be religious. I mean, some of the the, the most uh, impressive people in terms of their values are, are not particularly religious. Yeah, I always do find it strange that that point of view gets taken up so much, um, and especially of, say, the Bible as a source of morality, too. Oh, and, yes. <laughs> I mean, from what I, you know, what I was thinking there was, you know, it's a very difficult problem in psychology, right? Because psychology and its you know affiliate fields, like for example, behavioral economics, will talk about utility. So you know what what is providing usefulness to the individual. Most typically, it's the individual, and and not off, often not the group, and and how people make decisions based on their own utility. And I find it often is challenging to discuss some of the more interesting elements of psychology and the more interesting elements of, of life in that framework because it is devoid of values. And I think if you take values out of the conversation, it's just a much less rich conversation about, about our psychological lives. And I think this is where it's you know challenging for people to agree upon a framework for discussing values uh, that doesn't include religion, because you know where where does the authority come from for asserting a certain set of values? Uh, why do we believe those values, uh, if if not for some external source uh, of truth for that? Values are critical in in thinking about religion, and of course, different traditions have different views about how these values come about. Yeah, uh, again, particularly within the Christian tradition, the Bible was thought to, or at least the conservative Christian traditions, the Bible was thought to be the source of values. But it's you know very selective in what they'll choose from the Bible to promote certain values. Uh, others will say, but but notice, but notice this <laughs> over here in this adjoining chapter. So it's yeah, it's it's a difficult question of how how to establish uh, the fundamental values without, uh, you know, affirming a particular religious point of view. Well, now, okay, so here's a more speculative question, but following along the lines here, if you were to, if you were to start your own religion today, what would be the fundamental principles that you would put together? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, think L. Ron Hubbard or, you know, (laughs) what are the, what are other recent religions, I guess, if you could, I've Just pick out that. pick out the best of them. You know, we've made a few mistakes from all of these other ones, but maybe we can put together a better one now. Well, that reminds me <laughs> of a book that was published a few years ago. It's a consumer's guide to the world's religions. Oh, so, something to that effect, and it, you know, it it imitates the consumer's report <laughs> format, and there are like ninety nine traditions <laughs> represented in this book. So each each tradition has uh, a page. And and then actually, I think it's rather brilliantly done. And and I actually, uh, as book review editor for the International Journal for the Psychology of Religion, I actually reviewed the book. And it uh, you know it indicates what the core principles are of each tradition, gives you some notion of how many people you'll find embracing that same tradition, you know, what kind of community you will become part of. You know how how costly it is. Scientology comes out on top on that one. Oh yeah, I bet. And what? And what? How do the ratings fall? What's the what is the top rated religion? Oh, I don't. I don't think we can say. It doesn't have a rating. Oh well, yeah. we see. I guess that's one of the things we want to know is what's the best religion. <laughs> well, that, that, let me just uh, conclude the description of this book by saying mm. that uh, there's a final chapter. You know, if you don't like any of the the religions that have been reviewed earlier in the book. Here, here are principles you can use to establish your own. Okay. And, and it's a fairly serious chapter. Well, now, you know, now, what kinds of things are important for, I mean, what kinds of things would you bring along? Well, certainly some kind of, of community. I mean, there, I don't remember how they uh, represented it, but you know, they're, they're, you can embrace a religion in which there's a community of one, you. But you know, I, I've seen you know, particularly in my brother and sister-in-law, I've seen what how their lives are enriched by their association with a particular uh, religious community, and, and it's a very liberal group. 
I would think that would be very important. Uh, I think so. I think that seems to be one of the primary things that people um, lament when they say that they don't have something to replace religion with. You know, an alternate form of religion. Yeah. Well, some people do find alternatives. You know, I, I'm thinking particularly of, of gay persons who feel, you know, particularly if they've grown up, say, in a Southern Methodist tradition, I'm sorry, Southern Baptist tradition, mm -hmm. they certainly don't feel welcome there. And, and some of them bail out completely from religion. Others search for a more hospitable uh, religious tradition. Um, you know, like the United Church of Christ, and certainly Unitarian Universalists, uh, uh, and so on. But but some of these traditions have been very slow in uh, overcoming their their prejudices, their judgmental points of view, uh, and so on. That's a and is is this something that do you think has been to their detriment recently, or is it something that doesn't really have much of an effect? Well, there was a, a, a book published back in 1972 by a, a researcher named Kelly, who documented the decline in mainline churches and a corresponding increase among fundamentalist or at least conservative religious groups. And, you know, I was pondering why would that be the case, you know, when these, these conservative groups uh, embrace views that are so intellectually offensive and, and, and indefensible and so on. And he thinks that or his conclusion was that, you know, people are drawn to traditions where the, the cost is, is fairly high. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tradition in which people are truly committed, not lukewarm like so many sort of liberal religions seem to them. And that can that could be a slow death for a religion, I guess. Yes, that's that's certainly true. Early in the twentieth century, uh, some psychologists of religion, and I'm thinking also just of scholars of religion in general, assumed that uh, religion is going to fade out over the course of the twentieth century, and and that certainly has not happened. What we have seen is, is first of all resurgence in fundamentalism, and then on sort of in contrast. Uh, an embracing of various forms of, of what are called what is called spirituality, um, and the spirituality views are, of course, highly highly diverse. Uh, some very idiosyncratic, uh, much less likely to be summed up in terms of an institution. You know, who, who knows where <laughs> where religion is going? It's it is not disappearing. Uh, and it is astonishing how particularly conservative religion has survived uh, in an age which is so dominated by science and, and, and rationality. I thought the comment you made about community was interesting in that context. Uh, and maybe it, it also in conjunction with what you were saying about the cost, if you think about it from the perspective of how much you're going to identify with a certain group, it makes sense to me that the challenge or cost of being a, a part of that group would correlate with the amount of intensity that you bring to your membership or the, the identification that you, that you well, have with the, with the membership. Reminds me of studies long ago of, of fraternity membership mm. and how the more severe the initiation, the more convinced the initiates are that it was worthwhile. You know, kind of trying to reduce cognitive dissonance there, that uh, there must be something good in this organization if if I am willing to go through this. And I think, I think related, I think there is some research on cult groups, uh, so doomsday groups, that when the end of the world doesn't come at the predicted time, um, yeah. members still double down and... They find some, some explanation, some, you know, they'll say, well, it didn't come to an end because we were so faithful and and prayed, and, and you know, God re gave us a reprieve. It it is striking how religious points of view can really defend themselves in ways that are convincing to a lot of people. And I yeah. mean, so it, it if it if there's been a decline, or there, if there's been a steady state of religiosity in 
America over the 20th century when it seemed like things might be disappearing. Um, does it seem also like there is more space or place for uh, atheists also, that um, it's no longer quite as prohibitive to, to, be an to be an atheist publicly? Well, of course, over and over again, it's noted that the number of people who claim no religious identity has been growing, uh, I don't know, it's somewhere like 21% at this point. Now, the percentage is comparable to, say, the Southern Baptists uh, or other religious organizations. But, but atheism is still, in, in many people's eyes, uh, anathema. It's really, you know, in studies, they've asked people if they would uh, vote for a presidential candidate who was you know, black or who was Muslim or who was gay or who was atheist. And atheists come out uh, the worst. People you know, assume that an atheist is someone you can't trust. Now, why is that? Do you have any ideas about why there might be such dislike for atheists? Well, I'm tempted to think that it's partly uh, defensive, that they, they, don't want, they don't want to risk entertaining that possibility themselves and that, that they have to convince themselves that it's it's a, a, a dangerous alternative you know believing in God is so so critical um, I mean it's at the heart of Christian identity if you want to find out if someone is religious you ask do you believe in God and that no that, that also suggests to me the whole problem of equating being religious to having certain beliefs Belief as a prerequisite uh, is a relatively recent phenomenon and is, is mainly a, a result of Christian and Muslim faiths. There are certainly other traditions that have never thought of belief as a test of one's religiousness. And, you know, the, the thing that strikes me with my faith Q-sort is that, you know, people like the secular humanists there is a faith there. That's why I call it a faith cue sort. There is a, a commitment. Uh, there's a there are set, there are hopes and there are, there are um, actions that are taking to make the world a better place and so on. It, you know, it's easy to say you believe something, but the word belief is or and the verb believe are, are so elusive, um, and it's hard to find words to translate them in, in other languages. You know, belief can occur in uh, varying degrees and have varying degrees of implication for one person over to the next. Absolutely. Um, and I think beliefs are, I'm glad we got to the idea of belief too, um, because beliefs are certainly something that we study in cognitive psychology. And one of the things that is I think maybe sort of curious to me in a religious context is the way that someone might accept a belief. So, you know, in general, you might encounter some phenomena and take it on its its own merits and decide whether or not you believe in it. Uh, in a religious context, sometimes a lot of beliefs are clustered together. So the so the phrase "Do you believe in God?" has a lot of implications uh, about other beliefs that may be um, well, not, yes, not originally held. Yeah, I'm thinking of, of the uh, Christian creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, which enumerate all these various factors. <laughs> you know, the, the idea that saying that you believe in God also, it also implies that maybe you believe in an afterlife, that you believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible, or some truth in the Bible that there's this there's this cluster of beliefs that you may not necessarily have examined in detail, but that you're kind of taking over as your own when you take on the the belief in a God in a particular faith. Maybe that's an easy thing for people to do, and maybe that's a convenient way to acquire a set of beliefs. Just to to, to buy into it wholesale. Yeah, I mean, if you're you know if you go into the into the Catholic Church, then you you know you believe in original sin, and you've committed to a whole set of beliefs in a way that you might not pick them all up if they were individual beliefs. You know, one of the interesting things uh, in the literature is the, the distance between what, say, is taught in, in schools of theology 
and what ministers convey to their congregants. You know, the schools of theology, uh, and I'm, well, uh, many times, uh, will have a much more, one hopes, educated point of view and can go on at length about, uh, you know, how to conceive of God or, you know, is God conceivable? Is, is God a, a being or is God a something that pervades the universe uh, or something that lies within uh, and so on? These variations, uh, I don't think, ever occur to a lot of just regular, quote, believers. And it would be hard for them, I think, to entertain that possibility. You know, God is so anthropomorphized by most people. He is, he is a person, you know, and I, I use a pronoun. I, give, I assign him a sex. And, of course, many people try to avoid that or sometimes will just refer to God as she and <laughs> startle some people. But the notion that one can't be religious without believing, I, I, you know, I think is unfortunate. And you know, sort of asking people to to sacrifice their intellects if if they want to be find a place in the world of religion, I think that's really unfortunate. You know, I, I, again, I'm thinking of um, of a colleague. He's a social psychologist uh, who has a continuing presence on on Facebook. He's a former Mormon, and his switch from Mormonism to Unitarian Universalism is relatively recent. He was just, you know, I think he spent his first 50 years as, as a Mormon, and, and, you know, he was deeply involved in the tradition, but he was particularly bent out of shape by the Mormon Church's treatment and views of of gay persons, and he, he could no longer support that tradition. So almost every every Sunday afternoon, he'll post something about what happened or what was said in his Unitarian Universalist congregation and how wonderful it is to be a member of that group and, uh, and so on. He certainly has found a home where, you know, there are, there are no obligatory beliefs among Unitarians. Yeah, it's it's interesting from that perspective. Uh, so many things there uh, that I, that I found interesting. The idea of what you mentioned before in the traditionally theistic prototype of the personal relations that I thought I found that to be so telling and and just thought provoking because I don't believe I'd ever really thought about it from that perspective. But it really does seem that that the notion that you have a that, that, that God is somehow someone, a someone who you can directly personally connect with does seem like such an important part of at least Christian, uh, especially Christian fundamental uh, uh, theology. But also yeah. I think, you know, it just really does like define what I think of as like a really uh, religious person. Yes, and it also strikes me as incredibly presumptuous that God is so interested in you. Of course, this has been made fun of in various contexts of movies and so on, of, of God trying to keep track of all the petitions that come flying his way. Sounds um, like a Woody Allen movie. Yes. Well, I try, I'm trying to think of the film where this is particularly prominent. But, but anyway, um, you know, Cozying up to God or cozying up to Jesus is, is such a common thing. And um, if you conceive of God as the creator of the world, I mean, that's such a powerful force or whatever. And how you can just sort of say, dear God, <laughs> help me with my final exam or something like that. Uh, you know, it... it it, it, well, for one thing, it seems really naive. Yeah, I think it, what, when, I, when you were saying that, what, what struck me is, and again, I was thinking about it from the perspective of like the evolution of psychology uh, and religion and thinking about religions that, that came before, the, you know, the big four or five that we have uh, that dominate right. the world today. If you think about these religions, maybe of, say, for example, the Incas, 
where you would have a very strong, you know, ancestor worship and really, you know, bring out the mummy of your dead grandmother for events and really feel like this person was participating in that event. And in that way, that personal relationship with, with the spiritual or the uh, supernatural, uh, yes. it, it seems less presumptuous in a way, and, and, but it could, it could also be seen as antecedent to this perspective of relating personally to, to deity. Yes. <laughs> less, less disconcerting than digging up a corpse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know I want to be mindful of, of time here too. Uh, and I want to make sure we get to another couple issues one of these is, uh, I know that one of the main inspirations that you've had for your career is William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience. And yes. I know that you have you have collected a number of editions of this, and uh, it's been particularly meaningful to you. So I wonder if you wanted to describe why, why that is and why it holds up after you know, 117 years now. Well, as I point out in my uh, book, James effectively introduces the, the three main tasks of the psychology of religion. Uh, first of them being the descriptive task. And this can be, you know, religion should be understood in the psychology of religion as both a psychology of religious persons, which overwhelmingly dominates the American scene, and the uh, psychology of religious objects. So the religious objects would be all the, it could be the concepts, you know, like the notion of God, would there be a religious object? It can be an actual physical object um, and so on. So, but, but James was mainly interested in describing the varieties, well, as the title said, of religious experience and, and uh, gathers together some 200 quotations throughout the book describing different kinds of, uh, of experience, most famously his distinction between the healthy-minded or the very optimistic, cheerful form of religiosity versus the sick soul, which has a sense of, of evil in the world and including maybe a sense of evil within oneself. So, so that, that part of his book, which you know, pervades much of it, is I just think very interesting. And, you know, with each of these quotes, he prepares the reader for what lies ahead in the quote. And then following the quotation, he he analyzes it and points out what it what it represents. Then the, the second topic is what he calls the existential aspect of religion with us, what by which he means the uh, history. How did this come to be? You know, what are the origins? What are the, the causal factors? And. Mainly, he's interested, again, in the individual, you know, what, what made this individual uh, the, the person that he or she is religiously. And then, finally, the third topic, which is what most psychologists of religion in, in the U.S. pursue, that is the, what James called the fruits of religion, the, the outcome of being religious one way or another. And he finally concludes that, that uh, in spite of of negative fruits of one kind or another. On the whole, religion is is a, a, an invaluable function in the lives of human beings. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm neutral, agnostic about that conclusion. But I mean, the book is so brilliantly written, James, so interesting as a person that uh, I, I really have found found that book uh, enchanting. One one other thing that I wanted to bring up is a few years ago, you pursued an argument that the psychology of religion may just may be in for an update and may need to scrap current ideas and just start over. So what what's the reason behind that? And is this something that you still believe in? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> and and I represent uh my faith QSOR as an example of, or as a, a major way of starting over. It, it's, you know, it's an assessment device that is, is designed for, for virtually anyone to complete. Uh, and it's non-judgmental. It, 
the, the critical thing about the faith cue sword, which I, I really want to underscore, is that instead of, of the researcher defining what the dimensions are, the, the participant chooses among all these many alternatives to define what religion is or what faith is for him or for her. One of my deep concerns about the psychology of religion is that so many who pursue it under that rubric are really not doing psychology of religion. They, they are doing something, I mean, their psychology as religion, their psychology and religion, you know, the, the different kinds of ways of interacting with each other. There's even proposals for a theistic psychology. Um, there are persons who, I mean, Division 36 of Psychology, Religion, and Spirituality is mainly clinicians, and their interest is, many of them, integrating spirituality into psychotherapy. Now, if they want to do that, that's their prerogative, but I don't call that psychology or religion. So there's much that uh, goes under that name that really isn't that. I remember sitting in on an executive committee of, of Division 36, and there were 12 people there. And as I went around the room, I thought, only two of us are really psychologists of religion. And I had doubts about the other besides myself. There are handbooks that have been published. Again, there's a, um, a disposition to, to defend religion and uh, to focus on the clinical side of you know, the implications of religion. I think this is less true in Europe more oriented toward multiple religious traditions, more in tune with the, the uh, classic sense of the psychology of religion, which is disinterested, that is neutral investigation of the world of religion, the complex world of religion. Well, okay, as we wrap up, I, I wanted to see if there's anything else that you might have wanted to include that uh, you haven't had a chance to talk about yet. Well, that last point was one that I particularly wanted to put forward, so I'm glad for the opportunity to do that. I would really, truly like to see more psychologists interested in the psychology of religion uh, in, in this kind of basic inquiry and not defending religion by showing how how much uh, how, how how religion somehow promotes well-being for some people yes it does promote well-being no question about it but for many people it's quite the opposite and and i also um uh, you know thinking of well-being i think you also have to think about the well-being of society in terms of what religion contributes or detracts from and then finally and especially the well-being of the earth and that, you know, back in 97, when I wrote the second or repaired the second edition of my book was certainly thematic there, but I don't see that picked up by anyone uh, today. It's like it's just not in their domain. Well, that sounds like a, a great place to uh, to wrap it up and uh, a great point, I think, about the, the value of the study of psychology of religion and David, really appreciate uh, your taking the time with us today, and I really enjoyed the conversation. David, thank you so much. This is a real pleasure having you on the show. Well, it's been a real pleasure for me as well. Thank you for the invitation and for the opportunity.